Welcome to the Explore Words, Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we explore what the world will look like in 2030. Professor Paul Rogers discusses how the 21st century is already shaping up to be arguably the most tumultuous in human history, and we're not even a quarter of the way through it. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode looks at global issues including climate change, political instability and economic inequality, as well as the role that technology and innovation can play in creating a brighter future. My name is Paul Rogers. I taught at the university for more years than I can tend to mention, but I've got this lovely position at present of uh, basically being a, what's it called, an emeritus prof. So you get all the facilities, you do a little bit of teaching, and you get free use of the university's facilities. So basically, no administration, no management, you can get on with your own work. And I see a colleague over there, Malcolm Dando, who's in a very similar position. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, As you expect with Seema, she has this incredible knack of predicting things and even when events might happen, I suspect, because uh, I'm helping with a panel later today, which is about Russia-China relationships and the new world order. And essentially, I rather suspect that our three contributors, all of whom are hugely, hugely knowledgeable, may be doing some fairly quick rewriting during the course of the morning and checking out what's happening in Moscow. I don't quite have to do that, fortunately, because it's a rather more broad speculative talk. And we picked the title of the world in 2030 to give, frankly, a lot of room for manoeuvre. I'll try and limit myself to about 25, 30 minutes maximum so that we've got plenty of time for discussion and chat because it is such an interesting topic. Um, At the start, could I just ask you to put at the back of your mind two names, uh, Meadows and Carson. And I'll come back to those in a little while because they're two hugely important people in their own rights, neither and sadly with us now. Where do we start? I think probably the easiest thing to do is to say, well, on present trends, uh, where do we expect the world to be? What's the state of the world in 2030? And I have to say that on present trends, I think we do have some major problems ahead, uh, in some ways exacerbating what we already have. Now, there are some issues which are actually very difficult to even predict. There are others which are already pretty clear trends. The ones which are really difficult to predict are issues like the possible use of nuclear weapons, and that's come very much to the fore since we had the start of the war in Ukraine. Uh, Second is the possible development of the misdevelopment of artificial intelligence. And the third is the risk of pandemics. I'm going to get out of talking about pandemics because Malcolm Dando is one of the world's top specialists in biosecurity. It's nice to be able to embarrass somebody, but he is and is speaking tomorrow. And essentially, if you want to know all about that, then check out. Malcolm, when are you speaking? What's the time? Oh, right. Okay. So this time tomorrow morning. And if you haven't booked, I suggest you do, because he really knows just about more about this than anybody I can think of outside of government service. That being said, I think we have those to one side. I think the major problems that we're facing are in three different areas. And I know we discussed this among ourselves on recent years, so it's fairly predictable. One is environmental limits. The second is an increasingly fractious economic system, 
with more and more uh, potential for what you might call revolts from the margins. And the third is an understanding of security really predicated on military security and the necessary use of force under some circumstances, under rather a lot of circumstances. And it's when you look at all those together, and I would guess that if there are no changes in the attitudes in those areas, then in 2030, uh, we're going to see many more environmental problems, um, although there's some progress there already. And in all of these fees areas, there may be some sight of progress. I think we're going to see uh, far more problems, really serious problems, of wildfires, more intense storms and the rest, as climate breakdown begins to seriously kick in. I mean, things have changed dramatically in the last uh, 10 years in terms of what we recognize as happening. Uh, and that's part of a 50-year process. You know, this was known so long ago. But it's there, and that in turn is probably going to lead to much greater issues of human migratory pressures particularly from the global south towards the north. Most of the pressures at present are coming more from the need for people to, to move for economic reasons and also because of wars, but increasingly also because of climate factors. They, on the current trends, will tend to dominate. On the environmental side, uh, it's pretty clear that that's where we're going to be. One has to then factor in uh, the whole issue of socioeconomic divisions which are widening almost by the year and have been developing very much, very strongly over the last 40 years or so. I think you can probably date one particular broad change uh, to the early 1970s, in fact. Um, in fact, if you go back to, what was it, October 1973, you could even put the date, I think it was about the 6th of October 1973, you had the start of the Yom Kippur Rabadan War, and one of the side effects of that was the Arab members of OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, uh, decided to use oil prices as a political weapon to try and bring the war to a very rapid end. Now, this is at a time when the Western countries, including the United States, were even more dependent on Gulf oil than they are now. And at that time, the OPEC group of countries uh, actually were responsible for, because they almost controlled, something like 60% of all the world's exports of oil and gas. So there's a huge power there. They put the price of oil up by 70%, more or less overnight. And then just a few weeks later, in fact, on Christmas Eve 1973, they doubled it again. And by March, April, May of the following year, world oil prices had gone up by 450% from a low base. It caused a huge shock. It caused what was known, a, a word never used before, I think, stagflation, a combination of intense inflation and economic stagnation. And by the end of the 80s, uh, by the end of the 70s, the start of the 80s, one of the major changes in economic thinking was the rise of what you variously call the market fundamentalism ideas or neoliberalism. And you saw in the 1980s uh, almost a disengagement by states from many of the social functions, or at least a diminishing of them, uh, but not the power of the central states. And since then, you could argue from a perspective uh, of a sort of a believing economist that this worked very well, that we've had really steady growth. The reality is very different. There are more and more differences. You know, we give so many examples. I won't throw statistics at you, but just one. And that is that if you take the richest thousand people in Britain, 
and that is far fewer, about the same you would get in the Great Hall of the University, about half what you would get is in Joseph Hall. That thousand people, the richest thousand, basically their wealth currently accrues at slightly less than 8,000, 8, let's get it right, yes, 800 billion pounds, 800 billion pounds, 0.8 of a trillion pounds, just held by that quite small group. It's quite unbelievable what's happening, but there's no sign of it diminishing. And that, I think, is really at the root of many of the problems. So you have a, a basically divided world, which is also environmentally constrained. And then you also have a world in which more and more uh, you actually see uh, security seen through a kind of um, uh, responding to violence uh, vision, if you like. Uh, it, is not, it is not looking at the underlying reasons. Um, a, a useful little word, it's an invented word, is lidism. You keep the lid on things rather than look underneath. And that, I think, is what we're seeing at the present time. I won't talk much about what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, uh, but I think it is fair to say that in broad terms, the first nearly 18 months of that conflict have led to a huge increase in militarization per se. Uh, world military expenditure is currently at the level of $2 trillion a year and is rising quite fast. And you're seeing in all kinds of ways more and more money going into the military industries at a quite extraordinary level. You can check the Financial Times or The Economist, see the way in which basically defense stocks, as they would use the term, have risen persistently over the last year or so by very considerable amounts. And of course, one of the things is that in the kind of uh, society we have, it is extremely profitable. Now, I'll come back to that in a few minutes, but I think that's one thing really well remember. So in summary, you have this combination of a divided world, a limited world, and a militarized world in terms of responses to problems. Um, that, I think, will give us a sort of potentially more unstable the world that we have now. But let's just look a little bit more detail at some of the things there, and then look also at what is happening on the positive side. I've got to start, I think, uh, with climate breakdown. And the names I mentioned, you'll probably recognize. Uh, the Carson one, well, this, of course, is down to Rachel Carson, uh, a brilliant fishes biologist and a gifted writer. Back in the early 1950s, she produced a bestseller called The Sea Around Us. And then there was another one which looked at the edge of the sea. And they were really remarkable books. She was a really competent biologist, an aquatic biologist, but also knew her stuff in terms of wider issues. In the late 1950s, she got more and more interested in environmental issues in terms of the land environment and the way in which there seemed to be a major crisis developing, particularly with wildlife. And that was linked more and more to the use of chemicals like DDT, organophosphorus chemicals. And she produced that remarkable book in 1961 or two, something like that, called Silent Spring. That probably caused more of a, a concern and more of a controversy than any book of that decade. Uh, it was bitterly opposed and resented by the agrochemical industry. Fortunately for Rachel Carson, uh, many environmental scientists came to her basically defense very quickly. Very sadly, she was already uh, sick with incurable cancer and died within a year or two of the book being published. But her impact went right through, and it was one of the initial interests, one of the initial concerns about uh, the whole issue of potential environmental problems. 
Then something like, what, uh, 10 years later, I think autumn of 1971, uh, there was another publication. That just came three months before the first ever UN conference on the human environment, the Stockholm Environment Conference. Many of you, the older ones among us, will remember this. But that essentially was a crucial publication. It was by the person behind it, the key person, it was a group, but the person was Donella Meadows. And she and her partner, Dennis, and two other authors, all early systems uh, analysts at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, produced Limits to Growth. Now, it's worth remembering that that book, which again was subject to intense controversy from more conventional economists, was not saying the world is going to come apart in the next decade. Nothing like that. What it was saying was the indications are that if you look at the trends in environmental impact, use of resources, uh, changing weather and the rest, then unless things change, we're likely to have an extremely difficult world in 2020s and 2030s. Now, that, as I say, was a subject of intense dispute. It had a very big effect on the Stockholm Environment Conference and made it much more of a global conference than it would have otherwise been. The risk was that conference would have been about the, the wealthier countries clearing up their own backyards. Now it became a global issue. And the point is that that was there in the background, but slowly developing. Uh, Meadows, in fact, uh, went on to develop her career with her colleagues further. She did not really live to see the more recent past, which I think, again, is a great shame. But she was hugely significant in looking at this whole area and making us aware of the limits to the planet as a whole. Many other people were doing it, but I would single out, in fact, Rachel Carson and Elena Meadows as probably the two most important people. Now, since then, of course, the concentration has been more and more on climate change and increasingly the risk of climate breakdown. There's been intense opposition to considering that this might be a really serious issue. And one has to say that some of the data which came out, what, about two or three months ago, that showed that really sharp people working for Exxon and other oil companies had plotted the problem back in the 1970s and basically appreciated that at some stage, fossil carbon had to be basically phased out as an energy source. They were ignored by their own countries, their own companies. And I think this is something which, you know, one sometimes thinks that in a rather different world, there would have been questions of uh, sort of almost corporate manslaughter in these sorts of areas. And of course, there are now court cases along those lines. But the reality was there was very strong resistance to doing anything basically about it. That has changed, and it's in the process of changing now. And I think there are probably at least three reasons for that. One is climate scientists themselves are far more confident about what they've been doing. There was always an element of caution, which you obviously get, often get in the science policy community, particularly if you're speaking to a political leadership which may not really like what you're saying. And so people tend to hold back a bit. Climate scientists, by and large, now are no longer doing that to anything like the same extent. They're much blunter, and some of them extremely blunt. And in fact, one of the most recent studies, I think a very important one, which came out at the end of the 2010s, was a study from the UN, um, was it Framework Convention on Climate Change people, which basically said, if we don't reduce carbon emissions radically in the 2020s, then it's going to be very difficult to avoid catastrophic breakdown. And essentially, they reckoned that what you would need to do for a country like Britain specifically is to reduce carbon emissions by 7% per year for 10 years. 
Now, it's kind of reverse compound interest. You would take it down to about 40% of current output by 2030. So that was basically the target. We're now into 2023, and we're not even decreasing. The rate of uh, increase is slightly slower, but we haven't even plateaued yet. So now, in the next seven years, if we were to meet that stated requirement, uh, we, we need to be re re basically reducing carbon output by about 10% a year through the whole of this decade. That is not happening, but people are now aware much more of the need for that. I'd also point, frankly, to the experience, this third thing, of extreme weather. It's happening almost all the time. I was looking at the um, web, New York Times on the web earlier today, sort of the front page story is an incredible drought they are experiencing in Iran, which is already used to droughts, and now that is causing chaos in many parts of the country. Uh, we've seen that extraordinary increase in wildfires in eastern and northeastern Canada, uh, and we're still two months from the end of the, of the fire season. And right across the world, you're seeing this change actually happening. So those are three things. I would add, of course, that campaigning, including the stop oil people and the rest, is growing rapidly. And there's more and more of a trend for people to say nothing else will work except nonviolent direct action. And we're going to see a lot of that. So what I'm saying, in a sense, is on this issue, things might possibly change. They really might. Um, let me just say a little bit about the other area, uh, and that is on the whole side of security. And a country like Britain essentially looks at security primarily through a defense lens. Uh, and that is certainly true of the military. I've been very lucky over the years. I've been able to do talks at the major military colleges, uh, really, for the last 40 years or so. And some of the people in the military are only too well aware of this kind of problem. The Ministry of Defence has its own um, think tank, the Defence well, Development Concepts and Doctrine Centre down near Shrivenham, near the big defence campus. And that has produced a number of very interesting reports over the last 10 years looking at future security threats. And among those always is the risk of climate breakdown. So you talk into a military audience, I mean, same sort of talk you, I, I might be trying to do this morning, uh, and say, well, look, what is your role in this? Shouldn't you be actually telling the politicians that this will produce such a chaotic world that it's not something which could be handled by military suppression? It just wouldn't work. And might, you might think it worked in the short term, not the longer term. And the, the comeback there is, look, <laughs> very dubious about even getting politicians to listen even to the military, but also from their perspective, their role in life, if you like, is to defend the realm. And in that sense, I think they, they don't see it in this kind of light. I know one or two of you would discuss this before. I'll just mention one anecdote. It was about seven years ago, I got invited to take part in a seminar down at one of the Oxford colleges, which was going to be on, essentially, security threats to Britain uh, stemming from weak and failing states. And they asked me just to do a general talk at the start, and then they had a sort of experts from different parts of the world talking about their own experiences, a sort of regional base. It was a lovely thing to be able to do. I could go down, have a, a couple of nights at one of the Oxford colleges, which I don't think I've ever done before, and then do this talk uh, for 10 or 15, about 15 minutes, and then open it up and listen to a whole load of experts. They didn't actually tell me who the group was. I assumed it was sort of probably a diplomatic group from the Foreign Office, because it was a government-sponsored thing. It turned out to be the Commandant and all the senior staff of the SAS, along with the Special Boat Service and people from MI6. And they met about once a year to look ahead long term. 
And this is what they saw as the threats, threats to Britain from weak and failing states, to which you might add increasing pressures of migration from the failing states. So I did the talk and mentioned the importance of climate change. I was very lucky in a way in that the first speaker to speak was speaking about essentially um, arid countries across the Middle East. And she was a, a really very sharp analyst from Islamic Relief. Now, as you probably know, Islamic Relief is a big agency. It's one of the big ones, not quite as big as Oxfam. It's centered in Birmingham, uh, and so perhaps less well known. But what she was saying, well, she actually departed from her script just to say that what I'd said about climate change, she wanted to tell the group that Islamic Relief at that time, seven years ago, was getting more concern from its field staff about changing food production due to changes in the climate than just about anything else. It was already affecting them. I did talk to one or two of the MI6 people over lunch and over dinner, but their game, the attitude was, our job is to keep the country safe, and the job does not extend to actually, in a sense, warning people of probable threats in 10 or 20 years' time. So there's always that issue. Now, that, I'm afraid, at the moment, isn't yet changing. It may well do, but it isn't yet. Uh, but the, the possibilities are there. So, in fact, in some ways, of the economic side, uh, the, the basically the environment side and the security side, it may be the environment side where things may change pretty quickly, but not quickly enough. And the military side, I think we've got quite a long way to go. There's some very good work going on what kind of security a country like Britain might need. And if you're interested in that, there is actually a group mostly based in London, but basically spreading around the country, uh, called the Alternative Security Review. It's run by a group called Rethinking Security, which, as you tend to find out, is supported primarily by Quaker trusts. Time and time again, these are the people who come in to help. I might say the peace studies at Bradford wouldn't exist without the Quakers. They put the idea to the staff very early on, and they provided a lot of the initial funding. In fact, they raised the equivalent of nearly a million pounds in 10 weeks to get the entire department started. And we still have the Quaker Peace Studies Trust, which helps a lot. Just a quick advert there. I'm not a Quaker myself, but I'm a great admirer for what they do. But coming back to the issue here, I suppose what one is saying is that on the security side, we're not really thinking things through. We're not looking at it in a broader term of human and common security. And this is what the people at Rethinking Security are trying to do. They're a combination of activists, academics, and professional mediators. Check out their website because it's really very well following. They've got a very good podcast series as well. So that still leaves us back on the economic side. Uh, and the change there does not look good at all at present. There have been one or two occasions in the recent political past in Britain when you've had political parties put in very different ideas. Although it didn't last, and he more or less uh, was pushed to one side, it's a controversial area, obviously, but Corbyn's Labour Party in 2017 had a manifesto which actually met this issue head on. It was not actually advocating revolutionary change, but it was advocating a series of economic reforms which would have made a difference within three or four years. No more radical than, say, Attlee in 1945, uh, but still it was there, but basically it went to one side. And I think essentially, right across the political spectrum in Britain, right through to the current mainstream Starmer Labour Party, there is a kind of acceptance that essentially the neoliberal thing is more or less set and won't change. 
It can in many ways. There's sort of simple ways in which you can start changing it in the, in the extent to which the state is prepared to push the economy in particular directions. And indeed, probably more important than all for a country like this in Britain is to change the tax regimes, especially uh, the tax avoidance system. Britain is probably the most effective country in the world uh, for being, uh, enabling people to avoid paying taxes. You have whole armies of lawyers and accountants in London making sure that the really wealthy people are almost excluded from the tax regime. Um, if you went even for what was it, a 2% wealth tax on the richest three or 400 people, you would raise billions on a yearly basis. And that would start to give you the money to affect some of the changes. So the thinking's going on, the new economics foundation and groups like that are doing the thinking, but on the political side at the moment, we're really more or less at the end of that. Uh, a week tomorrow, we've got Jeremy Corbyn actually doing a talk here. He's not talking about the domestic economy, he's talking about the international scene. Corbyn, in fact, got a prize, a UN prize, uh, in I think it was the autumn of 2017 for, uh, in Geneva, and he delivers a speech which I find really fascinating, so different from the normal political treatise. And uh, we've asked him actually to talk about that and what it means for the future. Uh, we're in St. George's Hall, and I think there are still seats because it's a big hall, but you're welcome to come. I know it's getting quite full. I think, essentially, uh, the possibility of change there is pretty limited, except that you know, any governments which are even mildly reformist can start the process. What is most likely, in my personal view, is that we're going to see the change in those three broad areas of economy, environment, and security coming primarily on the, on the environment side, because that is closest uh, to, to where the dangers are. Um, the second professor of peace studies at, at uh, Bradford, a very thoughtful uh, Irish person from Cork, and therefore no great fan of the British establishment, was James O'Connell. And I remember at the time, in the 1980s, we were doing a lot of work, Malcolm myself, Peter van den Dungen and others, in the department about East-West relations and the nuclear arms race. And somebody asked James, well, why are you spending so much time on this? And he simply said, well, there's an old Irish saying, the bond that is closest to your throat, you first cut loose. And what he really meant by that, in this case, is probably the most immediate obvious threat which requires change is actually of climate breakdown. And that, I think, is why this is so important. And it's going to raise many issues in the near future. I see I'm nearly up to half an hour, and I do want to like, uh, allow plenty of time for discussion. Let me just take a quick look at anything else I should put at this stage before I start to draw things to an end. Um, Nick Buck was asking me, he's a, a long-time participant in the, in the festival, he said, are you going to say some positive things, Paul? <laughs> and the thing is, there are some positive things. I mean, and I think you had to think this way. I mean, I won't be around too long, but in fact, we, we have one of our new grandsons with us this weekend, Tioma, and he is four months old. Now, he and our other grandchildren, we've got seven of them over, overall now, of various ages, all of them could be alive in the 22nd century. I mean, Tioma would actually be in his late 70s, which makes you think, doesn't it? So the point about this is, you have to look rather longer term, but recognize change needs to come very, very quickly. What I think is, in a perverse way, hopeful, is that is likely uh, partly because of what's happening on the environmental side. It's the obvious marker for the way that things aren't working. This is, although, although there isn't time to look at this in any detail, 
I think it is also becoming more and more obvious that the nature of the environmental issue and the need for governmental action and intergovernmental cooperation is going to be very difficult to come through because we do have what is basically a market fundamentalist system. And that really can't cope with this sort of problem. If you don't actually believe in having an economy which will take uh, difficult decisions for everybody, for something which may become a really big problem progressively in the next five to 10 years rather than now, very few governments will actually do that, uh, even if they're sort of non-democracies uh, where plans are important, or if democracies on any sort, they're always looking to the next election. And we see that currently as we head for the next election. We see it in a way in some of the arguments within the Labour Party, which under Miliband and some other people's people was really starting to develop the kind of environmental probably, uh, policy on climate change in particular that you actually need. But that essentially is being pushed back a little bit in the run-up to the election. Possibly, if they get into power, as they may well do, then it, it may actually be uh, uh, a change. I think my ideal in some ways is they don't get quite a majority. There are five or six Green MPs appointed at the same time, and they actually hold the balance of power. Now, that would actually probably encourage more change. So I'm trying to be positive, but, but I suppose put it this way, uh, and let me open it up for discussion, which I think is much more significant. Um, it is a possibility, uh, and it is verging on a probability because of what's happening to climate. And essentially, you know so many things that can happen. I mean, okay, just stay with climate for a moment. Um, was it 12 years ago, my wife Claire was very keen for us to get a proper PV array, photovoltaic array, on our house. We're very lucky, we have a house which a little bit faces southeast, most of it faces southwest. And we'd got one of these solar heating panels on the southeast facing one, and that's worked fine for about 15 years. But she said, let's get a photovoltaic array as well. And so we went for it. Now this was after the end of the, uh, the Labour government, this would be about 2012, I think we did it. But because you had a coalition, uh, the, some of the things that the government had put in, including the fixed, the feed-in tariff for people with that sort of generating capacity, were still there. Uh, it cost quite a lot of money. At that time, a full PV array with all the kit cost 11,500 pounds. We were able just about to put the money together and went for it. The feed-in tariff was such, so generous, that many other people did it at the same time. But sadly, a couple of years later, under the uh, government in 2015, when the Conservatives were in a majority, almost all of that was stopped, and a nascent industry was actually killed almost overnight. Uh, in fact, a similar array now would cost about £4,500. Then it was 11500 So in other words, the cost has come down incredibly. And what's so remarkable about this is that that's not even allowing for inflation. So essentially, you know, the sort of figure of 11,500, it'd be near 14 or 15,000 now. So it's about a third of the cost. But of course, the feed-in tariff is hardly anything. In fact, there isn't even in one conventionally. Um, I'm spouting all this because one of our sons, Tom, in fact, the, the father of Tioma, is actually a renewable energy engineer, and he lectures in this area. And he says, you know, so much could have been done, but wasn't done. Um, one quick anecdote, 2012, two years into the, uh, into the um, coalition government, and I got invited to do a talk at an oil and gas industry meeting 
a select meeting of people who basically were the little bit of the movers and shakers. And I, along with other academics, just were asked to do talks about things. And mine was on some aspect of Middle East security. But I stayed for the whole conference. Indicatively, it was a 24-hour conference, lunch to lunch, and that cost £1,000 per person. Uh, I went for free, but I didn't get any fee, but I thought it was worth it because I went to the whole conference. Fascinating thing was they had a minister of state from the... From the uh, uh, coalition government, I won't give the name because it's Chatham House rules, but essentially he made it absolutely clear that the, basically the conservative part of the coalition did not believe in this stuff and they were on the side of the oil and gas industry. Basically they rather preferred a gas which is cleaner, but they wouldn't get any problems. But they had the Lib Dems who were actually holding their nose to the wheel a little bit. So in that particular interview, whatever you think of the Lib Dems and what happened in the coalition, in that area they actually kept them more or less on the straight and narrow. Come 2015, when Labour was embroiled in all the leadership uh, campaigning, uh, the, the government went right through, and now it had a majority, and dismantled virtually everything. It's come back a little bit because of pressure from the public, but essentially it gives you an idea of how this is so political. So I think the point I want to make is that we can make changes. It's possible we could be much farther down the road. So let's just finish off by what I said from the start. Where are we now? I said before, more and more environmental problems we would see, no real addressing of socioeconomic divisions, and a military system which is geared to essentially maintaining control rather than look at the underlying causes. Of those three, I think there is now the possibility of quite rapid change on the, on the environmental side. I don't see how that can be avoided, and it's going to be very uh, painful for many governments. On the security side, you can't be so certain at the moment. And I think one of the biggest areas, areas will be the whole phenomenon of closing the castle gates, keeping people out from moving. And that is becoming a really a, a very big issue. And then on the econ economic side, the beginnings of a change, uh, the, the think tanks are basically doing things very differently, then they're pointing to the possibilities. You know that lovely definition of prophecy, which is prophecy is suggesting the policy, uh, suggesting the possible. Sorry about that. Uh, basically, um, prophecy is suggesting the possible. And that is where we have to be now. Make it clear what can be done, given the changes in political will. Um, so essentially, the aim, obviously, is to see where the positive is, uh, recognize that you know many different people can act in very different ways, all contributing to a change in overall attitudes. It's got to come quickly. I think outside circumstances are going to dictate an environment in which it could happen really a lot quicker than we fear at the present time. Let me leave it just uh, that for the moment. Can we just have a pause for 30 seconds and then I get an idea of how many people want to come in with questions. What I suggest we do is actually just have questions which are purely questions uh, maybe three at a time. I'll get through as many as we can. Then towards the end, any people who want to give a sort of slightly extended question, but still no more than sort of 30 seconds to 60 seconds so we can fit them in. So just a very quick pause, I'll have a quick drink, and then we'll go straight into that. Thanks very much. Right, given that time for a quick think, um, who would like to ask a question? Quite a few. Um, I'll start with the three here I'll start with, and then we'll go around the room, okay? Do you want to start, please? Yes. yes. Uh, if you could speak up pretty clearly, the acoustics are quite good, but essentially one does need to project one's voice. We, we do have some travelling mics, but better still. Um, uh, thank you for a great, great 
talk. Um, you said a little bit about what one might define as the super rich. Um, I wondered if you could give us a little bit more optimism on that front and suggest some ways in which we could perhaps become more equal. Um, and because it, uh, what I'm thinking is, is that governments, in a sense, have abnegated some responsibility for regulating. Yeah. Um, as a and as a result, um, power has become secreted amongst mm. an a very, very small yeah. elite yeah. that's global. Yeah. Uh, and that seems quite intractable. So how yeah. do we get ourselves out of that one? Right. Uh, somebody who was... Yes, at the back there, please. Gentleman in the, the orange shirt. Uh, hello there. Uh, thank you for that great uh, half-hour... Uh, canter through some of the major problems, global problems we, we're facing. And it reminded me of um, many years ago, I was doing a piece of work in the Alhambra about uh, the environment and climate change, and one of the people I was working with said to me, oh, it doesn't really affect me, I've got no children, so I'm leaving it to someone else to worry about. And you mentioned earlier on as well neoliberalism and yeah. the impact of neoliberalism uh, on... Uh, uh, and for me, one of the things is it's very short-term, it's about short-term profits, short-term uh, benefits to the owners of capital. And I, w and I just wonder whether, as a species, whether we have the capability to deal with issues that are not immediate. You know, by the time climate change becomes an immediate issue for many people in this country, it might be too late. Can we actually reframe ourselves through our political and economic and social structures in order to think further ahead. Fair enough. And there was another one over this side, was there? Thank you very much for that. Some of the major issues that we have, like uh, the redesign of the national grid, uh, public transport as a way of uh, getting rid of the dependence on, the, uh, on private transport, and the inadequate housing stock that we have that's contributing severely to uh, emissions all require action at a national level. Although it's been a patchy scorecard during the COVID pandemic, there was major government intervention yeah. during that time, some, some better than others. Do you have you seen any evidence that that has increased the appetite for action at that level for to um, try and address these major changes that in uh, public policy i'll start with that because it's a fair it's a pretty specific question um, it is difficult to say because on the one hand certainly the government yet yeah, I, I will take me we'll be taking more questions it's just the first three um, on the one hand uh, what you're seeing is an acceptance at that time that there had to be rapid change but in the wake of that, uh, you've had so much controversy over some of these measures, particularly coming from people who do not want government intervention. You look at the anti-vaxxers and the anti-lockdown people, and the way on the anti-lockdown, there was a sort of solid bank of newspapers who have a lot of power in actually um, influence opinion, who were really against lockdown in virtually any form, and still are. And a lot of this is now being played out in the COVID inquiry. And it's also clear that we were very slow at the start. If anybody wants to understand why, there is one speech which explains it in the space of just a paragraph. And that was uh, Boris Johnson's uh, February the 2nd speech, known as the Greenwich speech in 2000, when the, basically the knowledge and awareness of the pandemic 
was really hitting us. Uh, you know, it, it, it it, the effect was started in early January, but Britain was incredibly slow. And he made absolutely clear, I can't quote it, it's, it's particularly Johnson's type of thing. He basically said, we do not believe in this, the economy has to come first. We'll be the leading state in preventing us being diverted into spending all our time catering with the pandemic, which can be sorted out readily. And that, but you see, the point is, if you have that view uh, with people around the Prime Minister at the time, who hold that view that the government should keep out of these things, it was disastrous. I hope very much that when the COVID inquiry moves on in a few months' time to look at preparedness through to actually how they responded in the first three months, that might give us a clue. So I think as, as far as you're concerned, um, it, it, it has had some impact and people have seen how quickly you can act. But beyond that, I think it doesn't help us very much. Now, on the other two questions, the, the nature of the wealth itself, excuse me a sec, and particularly, neoliberal short-term. Yes, it is very short-term, is the sort of neoliberal dimension. And in its way, I think um, it's, it's based purely, almost entirely on competition, except when it works so successfully that you get monopolies and oligopolies. Uh, and of course, in any competition, the idea is, well, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, everybody does reasonably well out of it. And if you have problems with the sort of people on the margins, then things will trickle down. The indications are they tend to trickle up, not down. So in fact, you get the increased differences. It doesn't come across very markedly in a, a country like Britain, except when you get untoward things happening. And you're seeing it extraordinarily in the growth of the food banks in response to the problems of the last three years, and even more so now that we have the mortgage issue. Uh, but for poorer countries across the global south, among the poorest people in those countries, it's been grievous for a long time. One has to remember, we, we talk about you know, the, the wealth in Britain. You have countries which have basically done, worked incredibly hard, but the wealth is contained in, in, in the hands of relatively few people. I was very lucky. I worked for my career for a few months in Kenya. This would be more, 50 years ago. But the point is then, just after independence, um, there was a kind of elite of about 50 to 80,000 people. About half of them were actually uh, European settlers. Um, now the elite is probably about um, half a million out of a population which is three times the size. But the concentration of wealth in that half a million is massive, it really is. And you get that across much of the global south. Many of the billionaires these days are coming from basically Mexico, Brazil, India and China. Uh, and, but the divisions are there. Uh, and so we've got to meet that. As far as Britain is concerned, uh, the short-term thing we have to realize that, that that must change. And I think this is a way again where the climate breakdown issue may be the key issue. But as far as the wealth itself, um, well, one of the things is there's not been very much work done, as far as I know, on the attitudes of seriously wealthy people to the wider predicament. Uh, but I understand that when it is done, uh, people of that sort of echelon in society are pretty difficult to interview. They don't really want to be interviewed. But when you have really good sociologists who basically are probing more, what they tend to find is that whatever your wealth of wealth is, you know, if, for example, your your worth, I hate to use the term worth, supposing you have five to 10 million, you're looking at the people of that group through to maybe 20 million and seeing where you sit there, not looking at people below you. 
But the same also applies to people who may be worth 100 billion or even, um, a, 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 you know, a billion, two billion, or even five billion. That group of people will also tend to look to their peer group. So in other words, there isn't a recognition that they're part of a wider dimension by and large. There are a few exceptions. And people who are sort of very modestly wealthy, n not in any way like that, there's a group, as you may know, called the Network for Social Change. And that actually has, that has about 100 members, people who just have about enough money spare to be able to contribute maybe five to 10,000 pounds a year, sometimes even more. You know, people who are set up on, on very good um, uh, pensions, for example, professionals and the rest, or people who happen to have made some money. And they are all about pretty progressive social change and funding it. And they raise a million and a half pounds a year. So it's not everybody by a long shot, but the super rich, except for a very few people, are really not in that thing. And of course, one of the problems with the system is that you see that as a kind of the answer. When we were first seeing the huge expansion of the food banks, I remember, I think it was um, a certain politician by the name of Jacob Rees-Mogg, sorry, Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg, and he was asked, well, you know, you know, there are more and more food banks. What do you think of that? He said, I think it's rather good. It shows that we do help each other when needed. And in a sense, that's the problem. It's much more common in the United States, where in many ways the direction in which universities go is dictated hugely by the money coming in from alumni, particularly at the level of the, uh, uh, in, you know, the really big wealthy universities with massive endowments. And, and essentially, the alumni feed money back. They will tend to support the kind of work uh, with which they're familiar. Uh, rather than sort of going for the major problems of poverty and the rest. So I think there are difficulties in this which we have to face, and it comes back again and again to whether you have politicians who can really look at this in a way in which they will rise above the situation. Now, on the positive side, two things. There have been many cases where that has actually happened. And in fact, you know, you look at that 1945-50 uh, government against all the odds, uh, they actually laid the foundations for the welfare state. And it's not just Britain, quite a lot of other countries did the same. So it can happen. And more widely, uh, just watch the time, yeah, we're okay. Um, more widely, one has to, it's worth re realizing that there have been some huge movements in social history over the last century or so, which have led to pretty fundamental change. Uh, many of them involving a degree of nonviolent direct action which we tend to forget. I'll give you three or four examples. One, obviously, is the move towards women's suffrage. Now, that varied a lot. It's much more progressive in New Zealand, of all countries. But basically, between about 1900 and 1920, you had the women's suffrage movement. Um, the heck of a lot of nonviolence, some violence mostly used against them, but it was one factor which made uh, governments at the time realize that they actually had to respond in a way. And that happened in many other countries as well. You look at the impact of the nonviolent movements in India in the 1930s under Gandhi and the others, and the many other thinkers, including one of the leading Muslim thinkers at the time, a very strong promoter of nonviolence. And in a sense, one of the things that the British realized by the early 19, middle 1940s was they could not maintain control of India. Now, the whole decolonization period uh, followed in many different parts of the world. There were wars of independence. There were also huge examples of peoples in countries not prepared to work with the colonial masters. 
And that speeded up the process of nonviolent change. Uh, we don't recognize you know, some of the dark side of that. You know, what, what the, I mean, we're now rethinking the whole of the Mau Mau rebellion in Kenya, thanks to some very good research by, you guessed it, United States researchers, not British researchers. But essentially, that was another example. The third example, obviously, was the civil rights movement itself in the United States. Some violence, Black Panthers to some extent, a huge amount of non-violence, and that eventually did have a big effect, which is still has to be fought for now in a non-violent way. And then finally, we do forget the many citizen movements which rose very quickly uh, between, what was it, 1988 and 2000 across Eastern Europe. We remember Solidarność in Poland, but there were many others. Uh, and they also speeded up the rate at which change came at the end of the Cold War. Those are all examples of basically large elements of nonviolence in what were other campaigns. So things can change quickly. But sorry, I'm rattling on too long. More questions, particularly from this side. The one here, one down at the bottom. And, and could we start with you, please, at the front lady down here? And I'll try and get to, and, and that to the back after. Take these four quickly. We've got just over five minutes, so we can do quickly. Just a, a very quick question, please, if you don't mind. What do you think of the idea of the uh, universal basic income? Is that a revolutionary idea, or is it just a, a sticking plaster? Right. Thanks. Right. And at the back next. You started your contribution to 1971, where crisis had developed in the uh, US dollar, uh, in its relation to gold. Now, then, that situation uh, continues to develop. And as we know, we're on the precipice either of a collapse in the world economy, or war, or uh, like in 1914, which seems to be periods that we should be referencing, and 1939, uh, war, revolution, dictatorship in the 30s, and war again, that these are the central questions that humanity is confronted with, and all the related situations of pandemic and the like are tied up with the attempt by that small section of society you referred to, defending their position against the vast mass of society by increasing exploitation through financialization. And Could we go quickly into the question? I've got two other people Yeah, well, well. That's, the point. that's the point I'm making. The point is that the, the uh, overview seems to uh, leave out, uh, or the overview should be brought in to encompass the uh, 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 elemental questions that you raised in the discussion. Okay, fair enough. Would yeah. you come over here, please? Right, two, two very quick questions. Go on. One on recycling. Um, we all do our bit, probably, in this, in this room, but what do, you, uh, what do you say to those who, who, who put forward the idea, it doesn't matter diddly squat what we do, it's China, India, and America? Yeah. Secondly, okay. uh, about the rich, do you not take any hope in Gates' attitude, Warren Buffett's attitude of giving away their wealth yeah. and recycling, as it were, and, re and pump priming in the same way that Carnegie right. did. And then the one at the front here, and I'll try and get back to all of them. 2015, the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals were approved by everybody. Yeah. Because there is no plan B, because there is no planet B. We've completely forgotten them now, apart from a bit of window dressing by the British Standards Institute. What are we doing about it? Yep. Right, let's try that. On the universal basic income, uh, I'll be blunt, I don't know enough about it 
to give you a, a good answer. It's just one area. It, it looks very interesting, one of a number of ideas. There are many others, like the circular economy and the rest. But UBI is, is a major one, uh, but I, I, I don't know enough about it to be able to answer in a, in a rational way. On your point at the back, that raises a whole load of areas, and it seems to me that one of the key changes in this whole area of who controls what was in the 1950s and the start of the Mont Pelerin Society which brought together the original um, neoliberal thinkers at the Mont Pelerin Hotel in was it Vervey in Switzerland. And they were meeting annually. And during the 1950s and 60s, the thinking was developing to take that core uh, of basically wealthy deciders through to a different level. But we probably need a sort of whole session to go into any detail on that. But I take your point about the way in which this whole area is so important. And it's just not something that's time to go into. In any case, I'm not sufficiently expert on that to, to give you a really good rational discussion, I'm afraid. Um, just coming through, uh, where are we? Um, I had, had to ask, yes, I can remember your one. Uh, let me just see. Um, Yes, ex examples, obviously, of the, of the, circular, the circular economy, um, donut economics and the rest, are all examples of new kinds of thinking, which I think are actually extremely important. You always get thrown back at you, uh, the whole business of, well, there's no point in doing anything on the recycling side, because, of course, it's the countries like China and India and the rest which are the problem. They will turn around and say, well, you're the lot who created it, uh, you lead the way, and we might be more uh, willing to follow. In reality, um, China actually is speeding very quickly on the wind and solar side, remarkably quickly. It's going far faster in terms of gross amount than Britain. And India seems to be getting onto that now. This is an area where I think there's potential for change, because both leaderships, whatever you think of it in other ways, seem to be getting the realization that it all will count for very little unless they can get control of this as well. And that might also come from Bolsonaro, uh, now he's gone from Brazil. And I think Lula again, there could be a change there. So there's some possibility there, uh, but it could be so much easier to do if just a few countries, ones that are in a position to do it, ones which are absolutely loaded with renewable potential, uh, make the start as well. And they could probably do quite well out of it as well. Um, this question of Gates and Buffett, it comes back to this issue of uh, essentially uh, the whole business of wealth. The problem is it's, you know, somebody like Gates and Buffett may actually be very effective. Uh, and the, the Hungarian guy, I've forgotten his name now, who, who's put loads of money into these things. Sorry? George Soros. Soros, Soros. They, I mean, Soros in particular, has funded a heck of a lot of this sort of research that's going on at present. I think it helps, but it's also a sign of the times that so much power is in so few individuals. And they, I'm afraid, are few among very, very many extremely wealthy people who don't give a damn. So we just have to push on that. And coming through to your sustainable, uh, sustainability targets, they're still there. I agree it's pretty dismal at present, but it's worth you just looking and remembering them because they set a whole series of targets. I think I'm going to have to finish there, aren't we, because we're just about out of time. Um, look, thanks very much for taking part uh, and for listening to this going on. I'm sorry we run out of time for questions. But um, I'll be heading for all towards my 90s by the time we get to 2030, so I probably won't be here to discuss it with you. But you'll never know, and if I am, I'll try and be here. But good luck anyway uh, about what we have to do. Thanks. <laughs>